reading from Genesis. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. They were so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So that it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of, of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. A reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. <clears throat> Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? <clears throat> Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a spiritual, physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus is it, it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Jesus said, I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The Gospel of the Lord. One of the great English authors and commentators of the 20th century, also we might say the prince of paradox, G.K. Chesterton, once wrote, the Bible says, love your enemies, and it also says, love your neighbors, probably because most of the time these are generally the same people. Chesterton, of course, was reflecting on the king of paradox, Jesus himself, 
Jesus, who gives us a teaching this day, which, because it's familiar to so many of us, may lose its radical edge just a little bit, but it has always, always been a problem, not just for the world, but for us as believers. To illustrate, we only have to go back and look at the spread of Christianity into Northern Europe in the early medieval period, and there were kings who were killed by their own people for being baptized. Because they were being baptized into a faith where their Lord and Savior said, love your enemies. And in tribal northern Europe, to love your enemies was to actually talk about the dissolution of your own identity because so much identity was wrapped up in warfare against the other tribe or tribes around you. That's how radical this teaching is. But if you think it's just confined to tribal warfare in early medieval Europe, you can fast forward to the 20th century, and we can talk much more locally about the Bishop of Utah who during World War I took a singular and lonely stand against the war effort as a pacifist. And he probably pointed and thought of this teaching at the heart of what Jesus tells us the Christian life is all about. And he was sanctioned by the House of Bishops And his own people in the Diocese of Utah, the people he was called to serve, moved to have him removed from office. We remember him now with some fondness in the Episcopal Church calendar, but at the same time, we have to recognize that at a time of heightened nationalism, it is easy for us, easy for us to lose track of this central teaching in our faith. Most of us, of course, don't have to deal with the world of geopolitics, but have to deal with things a little bit closer to home. Like that neighbor who doesn't like the color of our fence. Or here in Mill Valley, the neighbor who protests the fact that we want to change this on our house or that on our church or something else going on in the neighborhood that we like or don't like. Chesterton was right, yeah? Our enemies and our neighbors are very close to us. But it is even closer to home than that because as I'm fond of telling people who are preparing for marriage, your closest neighbor is your spouse. And Jesus tells us elsewhere in the Gospels that it is our intimates, our spouses, and our blood brothers and sisters, and our friends who often will become, in one way, shape, or form, our enemies sooner or later. And how to navigate that is why people come knocking on my office door sometimes seeking counseling, right? It's a struggle. What I want to share with you today, my sisters and brothers in Christ, is that it is a holy struggle, and it is in fact indelibly embedded in the witness of our scripture 
and the deepest parts of our tradition. And to illustrate that, we only have to turn to today's reading from Genesis. Joseph's father, Jacob, wrestled with an anonymous figure in the wilderness late at night. And when whoever it was who was wrestling with Jacob realized he couldn't prevail against him, he put Jacob's hip out of joint and he renamed him Israel, which literally means to struggle or strive with God. This was the inheritance of our spiritual ancestors. and remains the inheritance for us as Christians and also our Jewish brothers and sisters in the rabbinical tradition today. That the name of the people of God is not we obey God, we follow God, or even we are God's people, but we struggle with God. And those who put scripture into writing depict that over and over again because at the very foundation of the tradition is a fundamental struggle about who are we as the people of God and who is this God we struggle with. Do we have, on the one hand, a God of vengeance who throws out people who oppose us and gives us the land on which we stand, and who sanctions our warfare and our rivalries and our hatreds? Or do we have a God who calls us into a completely alternative way of life? A God who says we should serve and even find friendship with those whom we think are our enemies. Both of those narratives are present in Scripture. And in some ways, the rabbinical tradition has gotten clearer with this than we have as Christians. The rabbinical tradition is fond of noting that we have to make a choice. That's part of our struggle. That's part of being the people of God, of being named after Jacob, Israel. And it is, in fact, that that struggle is what Jesus calls us into today. And that primary witness to this is at the very beginning of the tradition, in the book of Genesis, in the great cycle, the saga of Joseph. And it's worth recounting and dwelling on a little bit today. Most of us are fairly familiar with the story. We all remember Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? story is Joseph was most beloved of the 12 sons of Jacob by his father, and his father gave him a special gift. He was also the youngest as a child, and as his brothers would be fond of calling to him, probably with a sneer, he was referred to as that dreamer, because Joseph had dreams. Now, if Joseph made one mistake, it was sharing the content of those dreams with his brothers. Because if you remember in the dreams, Joseph 
sees himself as kind of the center of the universe and everything else bowing down towards him. And in a highly patriarchal society, that's not something you share with your older brothers and get away with it for very long. And he does this over and over again so many times, and his father bestows upon him all these beautiful gifts. His brothers have had it. They are so furious with him, they are literally ready to kill him. And it is only the timely intervention of one of them that prevents them from literally taking his life. And instead they throw him into a pit. But then you do something worse than kill him. They soak his multicolored garment in blood and they take it to their father and say that Joseph has been taken by the wild animals. And they abandon him. In a sense, they literally kill him to his own family. When it comes to enemies, Joseph doesn't have to look very far, does he? You don't get enemies like that anywhere else. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, and then there's a wonderful, dramatic sequence of stories about how important he becomes in Egypt because he remains an interpreter of dreams and he is the only person who can interpret a repeated dream that Pharaoh keeps having. And Joseph sees it as a warning that seven years of famine are coming. And Pharaoh is so taken by this that he puts Joseph in charge of everything to prepare for the coming famine. And Joseph ends up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh himself. Then the remarkable moment comes. The famine spreads beyond Egypt and into the land of Canaan, where Jacob and his family are dwelling, until their food supply runs out, and so they go to Egypt in hopes of being able to get some form of assistance. And so, it's a little bit of a thumbnail, but you get the picture. One day, Joseph opens his doors, and there are his brothers standing there asking for food. And he is so transformed, they don't even recognize it's him. To understand the radical message of this story, we have to remember that the authors of Genesis want us to understand that at this point, everything is on the line, even God's promise. Even God's covenant with their ancestor Abraham, that they will become a people of abundance. They are at the edge of starving to death. And Joseph is so powerful and lives in a society where he is absolutely within his rights to take whatever step he chooses to get retribution upon his brothers who abandoned him and left him for dead. That the sense is, had Joseph chosen that path, the people of God would have been ended. There would have been no future. The covenant would be dead and buried. Joseph instead chooses to forgive his brothers 
and welcome them back into the fold and more than provide for them, give them new land on which to dwell and to thrive. That is a radical image that a carpenter's son in Nazareth probably heard growing up in the local synagogue. And Jesus takes that message and internalizes it and offers it to us as the Son of God. Because we are familiar with the modes of living that the rest of the world knows so well and that we've known throughout history, and that is a mode of rivalry whether it's within our own families or whether it's geopolitical rivalries between nations and peoples vying for resources. And we know one way of dealing with that rivalry is the old way of warfare. You simply conquer and take that which you think you need or deserve. But even when we set that aside, we still do what the early Romans did in Jesus' day. And that is, we contractualize. We make all relationships transactional. And we set up a huge legal apparatus to support that. And we negotiate our way through things. That is a world that is highly familiar to us. And of course, it is the world that Jesus lived in, in the first century. Because the peace that the Romans brought was peace at the point of the sword. You could keep your traditions, you could keep your customs, you could keep your religion, you could keep a sense of your national boundaries provided you paid tribute to Rome. In exchange for that, in this transactional peace, Rome would provide protection from unknown enemies at the edge of the empire and give you roads so you could trade. It wasn't all bad. We live in a world like that. But not even this is the world that Jesus is suggesting to us as his followers. The world Jesus is suggesting to us is a world of complete transformation. He doesn't say pray for your enemies that they might change, does he? He doesn't say even do good things for your enemies so you can bring shame on them doesn't say that either. He invites us to pray for our enemies and those who hate us so that we might be changed and walk in those paths of forgiveness that are so profoundly difficult, we struggle as the people of God. In that sense, our early Christian ancestors said, we are Israel too. It's the holy struggle. It's the holy struggle we are invited into today and that we are about to baptize Max into. A holy struggle where enemies become neighbors. Neighbors become friends. And in Christ, they become our sisters and brothers. And the world is made anew.
Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.